Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Billboard on Broadway podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Millsoff, features editor at Billboard and Broadway expert here. So if you listen to the podcast regularly, you know that I tend to mostly focus my attention on the most musically related creative people who are involved in shows, the actors and the composers and lyricists. But today I wanted to shift my focus a little bit to a role and a person who is incredibly important behind the scenes of any musical. When I think about the most inventive and imaginatively staged shows of the past 10 years, both on and off Broadway, there's one person who is often the common denominator among them, director Alex Timbers. Seven years ago, long before a certain founding father with unprecedented rap skills came to Broadway, uh, Timbers burst onto the musical theater scene here in New York with Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson an emo rock musical about our seventh president that seemed to shatter any preconceived notion of what a show could be when it premiered and proceeded to break records at the public theater. Timber's work since then has spanned incredibly diverse projects from the Broadway adaptations of Beetlejuice and Rocky to the wildly acclaimed Here Lies Love, which was this recounting of the life of Imelda Marcos using the music of David Byrne and Fatboy Slim and set in a theater that was transformed into like a dance club. Amazing. Uh, to these shows that sort of seem to bridge the worlds of musicals and plays and become sort of a hybrid of the two, like Peter and the Starcatcher and the Pee Wee Herman show and Oh Hello on Broadway. It might seem like these shows couldn't be more different from each other, but I think there are two key things that you'll see in any Alex Timbers project, an embrace and a kind of delight in the possibilities of live theater and the fun that can be had on stage, and an ability to blend so-called downtown, uh, more experimental and uptown sort of sense of showmanship um, in musicals. Timbers has been nominated twice for Tony Awards, and he's currently in early previews for his next big Broadway production, the new musical adaptation of Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. So I was really happy that he was able to take a little break to talk to me about the part he has played and continues to play in making musical theater today especially adventurous. Well, hi, Alex. Hi. So happy to have you here. I guess to start off, I wanted to go way back. I know you grew up in New York. Yes. And I was curious whether you were always a musical person or sort of what 
turned you on to musical theater in the first place? Were you a, a music fan or more of a theater fan? First? Oh, that's a great question. I was definitely a music fan, not a musical theater fan. I think my understanding of musicals growing up in the city was really shows like Secret Garden or Cats, which are... Secret the, Garden was iconic for me. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it was less iconic for me. But, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, to me, it, everything seemed just sort of uh, sort of rarefied and I, I, I didn't feel connected to it as a young person. And I think it was seeing Tommy, the Des Mackinac mm. production of Tommy, where I first thought, wow, theater can have a relationship to popular culture, popular music, music video visuals. And it seemed like there was a dialogue happening there. And that that was the first piece of theater where I was like, oh, this is this is exciting. Mm-hmm. And that was the first moment when you thought that like directing could be something that you'd be into or? It's really interesting. I, I didn't really think about theater directing for a while. I, I went to college and was interested. I, I was in high school making a lot of like public access. I had a public access TV show in, in New York City and like, and then, you know, making videos. And I was imp- interested in improv and sketch comedy. And I think the first time I directed a show was really thinking about Uh, being interested in comedy, the mechanics of comedy. And so I wanted to direct a farce. So I directed a Mm -hmm. farce uh, as a theater, but really more from like a sort of comedy perspective. But I I really fell in love with theater directing and that sort of led to directing another farce and then eventually uh, drama and then then way later musicals. Mm -hmm. Well, I was... I was not aware of this kind of, I think, little known footnote on your resume that your very first Broadway credit was on Jersey Boys. Yes. Um, which I found fascinating. How did you kind of come on to that and what did you learn from that experience? I was curious whether that was like, oh, this is the kind of show I want to do or, oh, I kind of want to go in a different direction. Well, I really looked up to that director because it was the same director who directed Tommy. Yeah. Um, and I was directing a lot of downtown theater. I had a downtown theater company. And I think when you're downtown, it, if you feel very di- like the commercial theater feels very like distant and it's unclear how you sort of raise your hand and say, hey, I'd like to like work uptown. Um, and so I uh, applied to be a part of this fellowship called the Drama League Fellowship. And as part of that, they let you direct a play like a one act, and then you also assist on a Broadway show. And so I directed um, something written by my friend Liz Merriweather, who wrote The New Girl, and we had gone to college together and done improv together. Um, And for the musical assisting, there was an opportunity to be not the first assistant director, but the second assistant director on Jersey Boy. So I was basically in charge of buying like fruit salad and bringing people coffee. Um, (laughs) But it was this amazing entree into seeing how uh, Broadway works um, and on, you know, quite an incredible show. Yeah, I I feel like the, the echoes of Jersey Boy are still being felt today, like very much. Um, Absolutely. You know, seeing Ain't Too Proud, uh, there are so many uh, similar creatives involved and um, mm-hmm. it feels like that was sort of the template for something that has evolved since then. Yeah, I, I think you see, yeah, the reflections of Jersey Boys in so many shows now. Um, I haven't seen Ain't Too Proud yet, but I, I absolutely can't wait. It's very, very enjoyable. One of the best podcast episodes I've had recently. Um, so I, I think that, you know, if you're a theater fan, you, even if you know a lot about musicals, it's hard to pinpoint what exactly a director does sometimes. And mm-hmm. I would love to hear just a little bit, um, maybe talking about Moulin Rouge, uh, since that's coming up soon for you, as an example, how much understanding of the actual music and the, the, the musical element of the show is part of what you do day to day and how early on in the process of 
creation are you kind of getting in there and shaping what the show will look like? That's a great question. I, and it changes for every show. Um, because my work has like st- began with this downtown company and developing work from scratch, that's generally when I come on a musical. It, it, it's similar. I, I start from the beginning. So in this case, um, you know, Baz and I were at a cocktail party and he said, the next day, hey, do you want to do you want to adapt Moulin Rouge for the stage? And I said, great. And so, you know, it's began with a conversation, another conversation, and then reaching out to this guy named Justin Levine, who's a music supervisor who I'd worked with on Blay Blay, Andrew Jackson, a bunch of my downtown stuff. And then reaching out to Sonia Taya, who's this brilliant choreographer who I've worked with a bunch and a book writer named John Logan, who's a, who's a a, a, a sort of a, a well-known playwright and screenwriter, but who I had never met before, um, but felt like the right mix. And so then you get in this, um, you start figuring out the the sort of beating out the what the adaptation is, um, figuring out song selection, and then you're very involved in the integration of um, score and text. And so really on, on something like that, it, when you're one of the first hires, you're in charge of sort of uh, overseeing sort of everything that comes thereafter. So I, I, I'm not someone with a, a big sort of music background and know-how of uh, the, the technical elements, but I've sort of learned that stuff on the job. And mm. you, you kind of have to, to be a proficient musical theater director. Mm-hmm. So there are, are various aspects of the many, many shows that you've done. And I, I think that it's kind of hard to put a pinpoint on like an Alex Timbers signature because uh, there's such a wide variety of shows, like both of the uptown and downtown variety that you've done. But when I think of your work, I always think that there is a high element of theatricality and that there's something about you that loves the idea of just like using the stage to the utmost potential, mm-hmm. um, whether it's in Beetlejuice or Pee Wee Herman or, or even on a smaller scale, Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. Um, is that a correct assessment of sort of how you like to approach a show? Is that something that has kind of evolved over the course of your career or is it something that you were always kind of interested in? Uh, it's, that's, you know, that I think the answer <laughs> is that where I begin with on a lot of these shows is thinking about what role the audience plays. Mm-hmm. So Moulin Rouge is my seventh Broadway show, but I think it's the sixth out of those seven that in the first three minutes has direct address to the audience. So the event of the show is an acknowledgement of the audience that we're all in a space together, that the show is, it, it, it's not like something happens behind a, you know, a, a wall upstage of the proscenium and we're um, just sort of voyeuristically witnessing that. So that to me is really important. And then, it, you know, extrapolating that, how do you break down those walls for something like Moulin Rouge and Blay Blay, Andrew Jackson, that is making a design that feels wholly uh, immersive. For Here Lies Love, it actually, and Rocky, it actually meant literally moving the audience and changing their vantage point in the middle mm-hmm. of the show. Um, and something like Moulin Rouge and Here Lies Love, which is this uh, sort of uh, Imelda Marcos disco uh, show with uh, uh, David Byrne from The Talking Heads, it means at times casting the audience. You're in a club, you're at Imelda Marcos's wedding. Now you're you're not, and you're just witnessing the drama and, and being really specific and clear with that. So so that's kind of the, the and that frees on between actor and audience is the thing that gets me most excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, 
so so yeah, in a way, I, I, I do look at these as events, but I also look at it as a kind of like a, a dialogue between actor and audience. And to be clear, I hate audience interaction. Like I would never want to be pulled up on stage. So it's not, <laughs> it, it's how do you do that without ever doing that? Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think that like the phrase immersive theater is like something that people recoil from and yeah. there's never a like sticky feeling to, to what you do. Is oh, it, is it like a, <laughs> is it a, a hard thing to do to figure out how to make it feel immersive without feeling like pandering to an audience or is it very specific just to like what the story of the show is to begin with? Oh, yeah, exactly. It, it's, it is. A, it's a real challenge. You know, one of the things on something like Here Lies Love, where really the audience is dancing along for much of it, is you want to create the the sense that uh, an anonymity at times, acknowledge the audience, but create an anonymity so that people don't feel like they're being watched by everyone else. So how do you do that? How do you make them part of the event, but also allow people to recede and not feel like the spotlight's on them. There's a real sort of uh, math to that. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I remember when I went to see Her Lies Love, I was like, it's the end of the day. Do I really feel like being on my feet the whole time? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be tired? Sure. And like, you didn't even notice by the end that, that you were even standing. I mean, it, it was so amazing. I and so. I want to return to that. Um, but I also wanted to touch on the idea that like you have taken on a lot of not just famous material, but like almost iconic material, like something like Rocky um, and now Moulin Rouge and Beetlejuice. Um, I feel like these are not just things that existed already, but like were conceived by people who are really auteurs and people with a theatrical vision. Um, and A, I sort of wonder whether it's just happenstance that it's worked out that these have been the projects you've worked on. And if there's something about developing a new approach to that kind of material that specifically does appeal to you. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, when when I think about like all the things I've worked on over the last 10 years, these do represent a small percentage of them, but they are because I think they're based on like IP, they're probably the most like high profile things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so they, they're sort of the most like things that jump out of, uh, in one's body of work. I would say that, um, you know, these all three of the things you mentioned were films that I loved. Um, and, uh, but fil films where, w as we began the adaptation process, um, the creators or the owners of the IP said, you really have license to adapt, to, to make it a different beast for the theater. So for, you know, Beetlejuice, we were like, well, you know, the movie's about the Maitlands. Can we make it about Beetlejuice and Lydia's relationship? Can we make Lydia the central emotional journey? Can we – is there something incredibly theatrical about setting it all inside a house that transforms like a little magic box? Mm -hmm. um, you know, for Moulin Rouge, the sort of the theatrical DNA of that is so clear right off the bat. Um, but, you know, the, the movie doesn't start in the club, you know. And I was like, can we make the whole envelope of the show – take place in the club? Can we, um, you know, look at all the emotional dynamics and re really rethink, you know, the character of Christian, rethink the character of the Duke, rethink that love triangle with Satine? Um, you know, a lot of, you know, with both Beetlejuice and uh, Moulin Rouge, the kind of the second half of the of, of these adaptations, the plotting is actually quite different. Um, and, you uh, uh, you know, and, and so what's been wonderful is Baz has really embraced that. And, uh, he, you know, he's a theater maker first before a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And so he gets that process and he's been wonderfully welcoming and also been a bit of a true north, though, along the way and said, oh, my gosh, this has nothing to do with the movie, but feels 
in the world of it. Or this feels like you're kind of missing the point of like what, you know, why this character exists in the drama. And Mm so so that's been great. You know, there's been just so much license to say, okay, like you're not remaking the movie, but make something really theatrical and adapt it. And then someone along the way to also just be like to help nudge us in the right direction if we ever get off course. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to kind of go back to a few kind of productions that are favorites of mine, of yours, and that I think kind of illustrate different aspects of, of what you do in the Great. theater. Um, I obviously want to start with Bloody Buddy Andrew Jackson. I love that show. I absolutely loved. Um, and I kind of want to hear a little bit about what it was like in that moment to be making that show, because it was, I, I have to say, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to say it, that when Hamilton happened and everyone seemed to feel it was so novel, I was like, this kind of already happened once. Um, And, you know, to have a musical about a historical figure that was using, you know, a popular music idiom. um, And, you know, I still, I think that's one of the catchiest scores of, you know, the past decade or so for me. I can immediately call to mind certain songs still. Um, You know, when you guys started out with that at the public and it went on to, like, break many, many records at the public, um, how were you treated when you brought up the idea and and what was it like to kind of see that blow up? Well, the the origins of that that show are kind of interesting. I had this downtown theater company that really was focused on doing work about historical figures in, in kind of irreverent contexts and with uh, and sort of contemporary idioms. So it sort of felt like a kind of like more like PG-13 schoolhouse rock kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in emo uh music at the time and emo rock. And uh, I really desperately wanted to collaborate with this really smart downtown composer uh, named Michael Friedman. And we we were at a lunch and I was like, I want to do something with emo rock. But and he's like, you know, you love historical figures and like historical subject matter. What about like, wasn't Andrew Jackson kind of the ultimate emo president? And I was like, oh, that's a that's a smart idea. Yeah. So we started working on that. And we went up to Williamstown and did it in a kind of they have this like space for uh, uh, d- developing work that's kind of literally in a log cabin and we developed this show and the the goal of it was always to do it in a kind of 75 seat theater downtown a kind of like the the new ohio or something like that or here art center and um we recorded some demos uh there and um it got in the hands of a guy named mike ritchie who runs a big theater in la center theater group and really got in the hands of his daughter, Charlotte. And she <laughs> fell in love with it. She was 12 and she fell in love with the score and kept playing it in the car. And he was like, I should produce this. So suddenly our little like 75-seat theater show that had always had kind of really, really modest ambitions kind of got kicked up a little bit. And we went to the space. And then based on what we learned there, Oscar Eustace got involved and we did it at the public twice, first in their 99-seat theater and then a, sort of very organically in their 300-seat theater. And um, and so we had this kind of great build as it went to Broadway that was very kind of just unassuming. Every step of the way was super surprising to us considering, yeah, the subject matter and that it dealt with like populism and America's mendacity and all that, you know, mm-hmm. it was it was it was, uh, it was an exciting journey. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, of course, hard to think about like the moments when different things happen because so much is just coincidence. But. I sort of wonder what it would be like if that show was on Broadway right now. I feel like maybe it would have resonated in a different way. Like, is it when you look back on things like, do you, is it hard for you not to think about such things or? I think, you know, the the show was really successful downtown and didn't work commercially on Broadway. And I think 
part of that is it's a satire. So I think that's uh, always a struggle to, um, you know, the number of musical satires that have been financially successful, you know, on Broadway, very few. Um, and I think, I really think the needle, like, you know, all, all the shows that sort of have come over the last decade, um, amongst them, there, there are several shows that have just sort of like moved the needle in terms of like what um, feels like a, 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 a type of show that's experimental and, um, uh, you know, the kind of experimental musical theater on Broadway has has progressed. And yeah, maybe 10 years later, it would be a uh, would, would have found a, a home more readily. Mm-hmm. As, especially as we sort of reassess certain historical figures. Sure, yeah. It feels it's a great like time to be talking about Andrew It's a great Andrew time Jackson. to think back to Andrew Jackson. I mean, it also brings up to me, I feel like, you know, something unique that obviously speaks to your talent, but I, I imagine also might be difficult to deal with is I feel like all of the shows you do are greeted with such, like, expectation. It's not even, like... One show every however many years, it seems like every show you do, everyone gets like super, super hyped about, um, whether it's Rocky or Bloody Bloody coming to Broadway or something like Beetlejuice or Moulin Rouge. And I wonder what that's like from your perspective, if that's something that you're even aware of. Like, is it something that you've kind of had to adjust to over the years to like mentally deal with? Because it's I mean, it's nice that people get so excited for your shows, but I would imagine it's a little bit of pressure too. Oh, that's yeah. It's uh, it's flattering that you'd say that. I I I don't. I think I'm like uh, probably not as uh, not super aware of that. But uh, I will say that one of the things that was inter- interesting a couple of years ago was after doing Rocky, I went and did a small downtown show about it was a kind of mashup between uh, uh, the Elvis '68 comeback special and with putting President Herbert Hoover in the middle, and we were in this tiny little concrete theater. Uh, that was a 15-minute walk from the subway on the Lower East Side. Tickets were $10, and you were given a beer. And I don't even think there was a program. And it was it was it couldn't have been sort of rattier. And it, we didn't open reviews. It was just like a developmental production. And it, it was it was interesting because I was I, I have been interested in doing more and more stuff with, with the company. And people, you know, th- that thing couldn't have been more unassuming. And there was a lot of feedback of like, you know, it's good, but I don't know if it's like a Broadway show. And I was like mm-hmm. – it's like what part of this is is indicating that this seems like it should be a Broadway show? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah there's n- nothing seemed to, am- to have that ambition in mind. So it, it uh, that was the fir- first time that I confronted maybe uh, oh maybe I I just never understood why why do um why do directors that work a lot on Broadway why don't they also just do shows in fifty seat theaters and go back and forth? Steven Soderbergh does that mm-hmm. in film. And I sort of got a little, oh, the expectations of what your ambitions with the production are really what change, not kind of mm-hmm. the actual aesthetics. So yeah. Much. Yeah, no, I'm, I am I am sort of perpetually fascinated by, by the idea that every show has to go to Broadway to be considered successful. Right, right. And I think a lot of shows are, are not meant for that space, um, which brings me to Here Lies Love, which is one, one of my all-time favorites. And um, to me, this is a show that, like, it's obviously had, it's had a life beyond the public and it's had various productions in other cities. Um, so clearly there's a continuing interest in it. Do you think that that's a show that's could have a life on Broadway eventually, or do you think it's meant for smaller theaters where the sort of whole 
theatricalization of the club scene can can maybe live better. The dream is Broadway, yeah. um, and we're actively working on it. Um, uh, we th- we did a test production out in Seattle where we figured out how to keep the 360 immersive quality you felt at the public or the national, but fit, situate that into a proscenium theater. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were really excited about it. And so that's that that, that is the dream. Yay! Um, well, so. As you mentioned before, David Byrne and Fatboy Slim were both involved in that show. What was the experience like of taking two artists from sort of outside the theater realm, more in the pop? Well, David Byrne, I think, does consider himself a pop musician in certain ways um, and kind of bringing them into the theater space and working with them on that. Uh, yeah. Well, first of all, D- David Byrne loves musicals and he loves theater and he sees, you know, he's out seeing dance and theater and music mm-hmm. like six nights a week. I mean, he's, he's, he's sort of, I mean, he's a really incredible, incredible consumer of work as much as he is a maker of work. Um, he, his collaboration with, uh, Fatboy Slim really sort of predated my involvement with the show because they had this concept album first. So mm-hmm. I didn't really interact much with him, uh, but I interacted a lot with David. And David was, I mean, it was incredible to collaborate with him. And, and we, we've done another musical since then. And, you know, I'm helping him a little bit with this um, uh, thing he's doing in the fall yeah. at the Hudson. And, uh, you know, he's he's an incredible collaborator. He's an incredible storyteller. And he's interested in, in how does the you know, all the sort of pop music conundrums of how do you have a repeated hook that uh, still um, uh, forward story, even though, you know, for a, for pop music, you need to come back to that same hook. You mm-hmm. know, how, how does it have different meaning each time? How does the verse advance? What What is the emotional transformation that happens in the bridge of a song? Like all these things he's really curious and interested in. And, and with Here Lies Love, because we didn't have text, we would create these charts where, you know, you're like, okay, the lyrics doing this, the staging's doing this, the video's telling us this. And by the additive principles of all this thing, here's the story beat that's happening at this moment. Here's the story beat that's happening during the chorus, during the bridge. And then, you know, we, we worked through the entire show that way. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was a really unusual and wonderful collaboration. And also with the choreographer, Annie B. Parsons, she's a big part of that too. Yes. Oh my God. Love her. And I loved his, uh, his tour that he did with her as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's the thing that's her. coming in this fall. It's, yeah. it's, it's amazing. I'm excited. And also, I mean, Here Lies Love and, and other shows, I think various shows you've done have, I think, really launched people's careers. I mean, in, I mean, not that they weren't acting beforehand, but like Andy Carl kind of having a big moment in Rocky and he's um, gone really far since then. And I think a lot of people have come out of Here Lies Love in the various productions, um, including Ruthie, but yeah, uh, other other people as well. Show. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's extraordinary. You know, I, I, I remember there's this this company when I was downtown uh, called the Adobe Theater Company. I don't know if you remember. They had yeah. a motto downtown theater with an uptown sensibility. And I, <laughs> what I've does always, that even mean? <laughs> I, I, I've always loved the, you know, the collision of those worlds, you yeah. know? I mean, I think that, uh, you know, in something like, uh, you know, Here Lies Love, where you have Dave Corns, who, you know, might do the Oscars, working with Annie B. Parson, who's such like a cool downtown, uh, you know, auteur theater maker hero, um, working together. That's such an interesting collaboration. And, and that, that's the sort of stuff that, that kind of fuels me is the, the sort of the surprise of that watching, you know, uh, on this one, Kathy Zuber on Moulin Rouge, who has seven Tony awards working with Sonia Taya, who has to be one of the coolest, most visionary choreographers today. That that's really 
gets gets me excited to get out of bed and go to rehearsal. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, I think one of your sort of more unique projects, which wasn't musical directly, but was very musical in interest, was Oh Hello, oh, um, I love which Ohio. I'm an Oh Hello obsessive. Um, and uh, for for those who haven't seen it, this is a show that uh, John Mulaney and Nick Kroll, who are comedians, do together and have uh, have done, you know, starting in downtown theaters like a decade ago and was on Broadway a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and the show was – it's not a musical. It's kind of one extended comic show um, that did have a narrative uh, arc. But so much of it to me was about love of musical theater. Mm-hmm. And there were so many little in-jokes that you would have to be a musical obsessive to get. Um, and I love that aspect of it. So I was just interested to hear a little bit from your perspective what working with them on that was like. Like are I assume they're big musical fans. Um, yes. I, I, let me talk about Nick and John because I adore both of those guys in, in just one second. I, th- I think what's interesting about Oh Hello is, you know, my, my background, again, being an improv and sketch and like I think about Tommy where I talk about the collision between two worlds. Um, what's really interesting to me in Broadway and where I think there's like real space that uh, you don't see a lot of, and I just wish there was more of is where the comedy world meets the you know where plays meet comedy events mm-hmm. and Andrew Jackson was a little like that when I did the Pee Wee Herman show that was definitely more in that terrain and Oh Hello is like a great example of something that where the there's a fusion of those worlds um, John and Nick are like huge theater fans they are huge theater aficionados uh, uh, they know you know, like everything about Stephen Sondheim lyrics and it's or like Arthur Miller play conventions. It is it is incredible. And I, I always find as, as someone who works primarily in theater, it's always incredibly flattering when someone, you know, who has an ostensibly much cooler job, which those guys do than a theater director, like <laughs> knows and loves the craft in which you work uh, every day. So those guys have been developing these characters of uh, that they play in the show, Gil Faison and George St. Eaglen for a decade, uh, and have been playing them, and they were playing it on the Kroll show, and they were doing um, a piece down at um, – they wanted to do a theatrical piece with those characters, and so they did it down at Cherry Lane, and, uh, and that's where I, I started working with them on it. And after a couple of performances, you could see people were going just crazy for, for them and these characters and the conceit of their show. And that's when I sort of raised my hand and was like, I think we should invite some people, like producers from uptown and see like if there might be like further mileage for this. And I always think in the back of their head, they had thought, you know, could we ever do Broadway? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has been the most like sort of satisfying points in terms of your career of believing and uh, people and notions and uh, believing in what Broadway can uh, embrace was remember, I remember when that marquee went up, people were like, what is this? Who are these insane people? This thing's going to close immediately. And the thing was a huge success and recouped yeah. and everyone sort of got on the train and, and, and by the end realized how brilliant um, it, much of America knew how brilliant Nick and John were before the start of that that show. But by the end, a lot of Broadway people who didn't necessarily know, you know, love the Nick and John. You know, they're like Broadway royalty now. So it's it's very cool. Did you? I have to ask. Did you watch Co-op the musical? Oh, I love Co-op yes. the musical. Co-op. And Eli Bolin, brilliant, <laughs> brilliant composer. And Alex Brightman was in it. Yes, incredible people. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I, I need to like rewatch it for the third time. In a big way, uh, this this was the uh, the sort of fake Sondheim taping of a musical that 
uh, John Mulaney did on uh, Documentary Now, which I highly recommend to anyone who hasn't watched it. Um, you know, I, you've talked a lot about the sort of crashing of downtown and uptown sensibilities. And it makes me think a lot about the the moment we're in now for Broadway. Mm-hmm. I think it's this is definitely a unique time when it feels like downtown shows are having a moment uptown, so to speak, Absolutely, like yeah. Hades Town mm-hmm. and um, and this new Oklahoma at the same time that we have, you know, big shows like Beetlejuice and Moulin Rouge. And I think over the course of your career, you've kind of seen both sides of that on Broadway, obviously. I'm just curious what you make of sort of where we're at now. Are you excited about where musical theater is going on Broadway now? Are there things you still want to see evolve in certain ways? I think it's a really exciting time for musical theater. I mean, I think you're exactly right that the that um, Hades Town and, and Oklahoma, the success of those, I think, are really exciting for Broadway. Um, and I think that uh, it seems like attendance is up every year. I mean, I, I don't know much about the business side of Broadway, but um, it, 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 you, you just feel that Broadway is more uh, a part of the popular culture than it ever has been in, in my lifetime, at least. Um, you know, and just personally, I do think of Beetlejuice as a kind of crazy, weird downtown show yeah, with puppets a, and like stuff. That is, as you're saying that, I'm theater. like Beetlejuice is very strange. Yeah. Also, <laughs> I, I think Moulin Rouge is really outre and like and, and wild, and you know, and, and to me, feels like a complete extension of like the kind of Blay Blay Andrew Jackson. I mean, that's how I got hired was Here Lies Love and Blay Blay Andrew Jackson. So it's like it's it feels to me like a continuation of the sort of the dialogue that was when I was doing shows at PS122 and Hero Arts Center. So for me, both of these things don't feel like like large musicals. They feel like really personal, weird musicals that happen to have a bigger budget than certain things I've worked on before, you know, yeah. if that no, makes sense. I like the idea of that. There should be more big budget, really weird musicals. Yeah. Let's let's make that the next step. Um, well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you Great so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And there's no mountain too high, no river too wide. Sing out this song and I'll be there by your side. Storm clouds may gather and stars may collide. If you're eager to see Alex Timbers' theatrical vision in action, Moulin Rouge will be opening at the Al Hirschfeld Theater on July 25th, and Beetlejuice is currently running at the Winter Garden Theater. If you like Billboard on Broadway, please subscribe and give us reviews and stars on iTunes. You can also find the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, among other platforms. If you want to talk about your love of the podcast on social media, I'm at Rebecca Millsoff on Twitter and at YaDownWithRMM on Instagram. You can always use hashtag Billboard on Broadway to talk about the podcast and hope to have you back next week. Live, live, live.